Happy Father's Day to all you men uh, in the gathering. I am so very pleased and honored to be here with you today for a whole host of reasons. Uh, number one, I don't know how many times I've had the privilege of, uh, of preaching here at the Creek. I, I think the first time you guys were meeting in, in an event center somewhere in this region of the, uh, of the state and were growing like crazy and couldn't find a venue large enough to hold all those that were coming to hear about Jesus. And so it's been a privilege of mine to watch uh, your church grow and impact this part of your state uh, for uh, the gospel and for the kingdom. Uh, but it's also a privilege to be here because I don't know that I have a better friend uh, in the ministry than your pastor, uh, uh, Trevor and Allison uh, and Ashley and I met almost 20 years ago. Can you believe it's been 20 years that we've been friends and we've gotten into trouble together and uh, we've walked through uh, uh, highs and lows of life together and, and there's not been a major decision that I've made as a, as a minister of the gospel or as a pastor that I have not probably run it by uh, Pastor Trevor and uh, ask his prayer support and wisdom uh, to invest in it as well. So it's a, it's a privilege to be here with my friends and, uh, and your leaders, what a privilege it is. I also get a chance to come and say thank you. Uh, Pastor Trevor mentioned that, um, that I lead Salem Church on Staten Island in New York City. And uh, it was about three years ago, we were in the middle of, uh, of this uh, incredible pandemic. Uh, we're in our city, we were losing over a thousand people a day. We're dying in our hospitals and um, our medical centers were running out of, uh, of uh, personal protective equipment and they needed the assistance of, uh, of others to help find those resources. And as soon as that need came up, uh, our church stepped up. And one of the reasons we were able to step up is because you uh, were generously investing in our ability to meet needs. So we had uh, contacts around the state to find equipment that our doctors and nurses and medical staff needed. And because you all provided the dollars, we provided the legwork and the manpower to go find it. And there were hospitals and uh, medical centers that had the protective equipment they needed in the early days of the pandemic, uh, due in part to the fact that you were generous uh, with your resources and invested in our ability to serve our city in one of the darkest moments in the history of our city. So I get to come and stand here and say thank you. Uh, one of your core values, I saw it on the wall back uh, in the back room, is that generosity changes lives. And I'm a testimony to that in New York City. And I want to say thank you to the Creek Church. And then finally, I want to say how excited I am to have about 20 of your high school students and leaders coming to serve with us this week. And so uh, we're going to be serving together on Staten Island, sharing the gospel and having gospel conversations and serving our community in various ways. And so it, it is uh, one of the, the greatest honors of my life when a church entrusts us, not just uh, with their uh, people, but with their best to come and serve alongside us for a few days and help us to engage our community with the gospel. One of the greatest challenges we face with the ministry that God's given us in New York City is indifference. Uh, people don't know the church exists. They don't care the church exists and they don't see the revel uh, the, uh, the relevance, the re relevance, I'm not saying that, the relevance of the local church in their daily life. And, uh, and so these mission trips allow us to have the opportunity to serve them in a way that it uh, gets their attention and gives us a chance to, to share the hope of, of Jesus with the community. So thank you, thank you, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you do. And thank you for the privilege of bringing the message today. I'm gonna join the series that you've been in on the subject of King. David. So if you have a Bible, take it and turn with me to the Psalm, the Psalms chapter 63. Um, a few years ago, I had the chance to preach uh, through Psalm 63 with our church in New York. As a matter of fact, it was during the period where we were meeting remotely. Like I know you did for many weeks and months, we met remotely as well. And during that period of time, we, we looked at Psalm 63 as a very important text that was appropriate for that season of our life. But I think it's appropriate for our season that we're in today as well. The message I have for you today is all about seeking God. 
It's all about seeking God. It's appropriate that we're here on Father's Day, and, and one of the things that I know about my father, who passed away about a year and a half ago, and I know about my own fatherhood, is that we're always seeking something. We're always looking for something. Sometimes it's seeking something important, like how am I gonna provide for these children that never stop eating? You know, what is it gonna take to go make enough so I can feed these bottomless pits we call kids? Sometimes it's seeking something as simple as the remote control. It has disappeared and needs to be located. But we're always seeking something, seeking validation, seeking a, a, a laugh to our jokes, and that video was awesome. We're always seeking something, and the argument I'm gonna to make to you today in the time that I have with you is I want to help you. I, I want to help you to understand and to see from these verses that we're gonna look at is that seeking God is the most valuable, the most worthwhile endeavor of your life. There is nothing you could do with your time, fathers. There was nothing you could do with your investment that would matter more to your family, to your life, and to the world around you than being a man or being a woman who seeks God. Now, what we find in Psalm 63 is a unique season in David's life. And I know that you're going through his life and, and through the narrative of his life. And I encourage you to stick with the entire series. But in Psalm 63, we discover one of the many Psalms that David wrote. Now, of the 150 Psalms in the book of Psalms, you're going to notice that 70 to 85 of them were written by King David. And why wouldn't he? One of the first things we know about David as a young boy is that he was a very skilled musician. He was capable of playing the harp in such a way that he could bring even, even peace to the, to, the, to the disturbed heart and mind of King Saul. The introduction to Psalm 63 says that David was in the wilderness. He was in the desert of Judah. Not only that, we believe and scholars tell us that Psalm 63 was written late in David's life, not early in his younger days. It is in his older days and latter days. Another thing we know about Psalm 63 is it was written during one of the darkest periods in David's life. He was going through one of the hardest and most challenging and most difficult seasons of his life. Can I tell you why? Let me give you a few things that indicate what led up to this very dark season in David's life. And maybe you're going through a dark season right now and you may relate to some of these things that led to David's dark season that may be similar to yours as well. The first thing that we see that led to David's dark season was sin. Sin. You see, David had uh, committed sin with a woman named Bathsheba. She was another man's wife and he had actually had an affair with her. Some scholars believe he actually raped her against her will. In addition, David used his power as king to cover up that sin, to, to try to make it right. And one of the ways that he used this and abused his power was he actually sent uh, Bathsheba's husband off to be killed. So there was murder and deceit to the point that the community around David saw how his soldier Uriah had perished in battle and David took his wife into his own home and the world was, was lauding David. They were complimenting David and talking about what a great man David was because it looked like he was doing some, something selfless for someone who needed it. But when all reality, it was, it was his sin. So his sin led to one of the darkest seasons of his life. In addition, drama ensued. After that incident with Bathsheba and Uriah, David's family was an absolute mess. As you read through 1st, 2nd Samuel, you're going to notice there was sexual immorality, there was deception, there was a lack of fatherly leadership on David's part, and to the fact that one of his sons, Absalom, actually killed another one of his sons, Amnon, because of another big mess, and then Absalom fled the city and went into hiding because he was afraid he would be killed as well. So you had sin, and then the drama that ensued. But then there was also betrayal. 
You see, David was willing to forgive Absalom, his son, for killing his other son, Amnon. And in fact, he brought Absalom back to Jerusalem and forgave him. But his son Absalom repays him by leading a rebellion against King David. And he took David's nephew, Amasa, and the leadership of David's own tribe of Judah, and he turned them against David. And so David's only answer to his son's rebellion and his son's revolt against him was to run from Jerusalem, to leave his throne, to leave the temple, to leave his kingdom, and to go into hiding at the sea, the Dead Sea. And that's where we find him when he's writing Psalm 63. David has been run off his own throne by his own son, and he's in a place of desolation. He's on the shores of the, of the Dead Sea, which by the way is not only literal, but it's also, it's also figurative in that it's the lowest point on earth. You know that about the Dead Sea. Your, your pastor and his wife and my wife, we went to the Dead Sea several years ago. We had a chance to see that place and to be in that place. And that's the one word you can use to describe that place is it is desolate. There's nothing there. Nothing can grow there. It's the lowest place on earth. And that's where David was on the shores of the Dead Sea hiding out in caves to avoid capture. Now, I don't know where you are in your walk right now or your life right now. Maybe you're dealing with sin. Maybe it's the sin you've committed that you feel deep regret and shame over. Maybe it's the sin someone else has committed against you, but it's resulted in a very dark season. Maybe you're walking through a season of drama and difficulty and dysfunction. Maybe like uh, some families I know of in New York, you put the fun in dysfunctional. You're just dealing with a mess right now. It's drama everywhere you turn. Maybe you're dealing with the betrayal of a friend or a family member. Maybe, maybe in the context of your job, somebody has stabbed you in the back or you're dealing with, with, with the, the fallout from the realization that you weren't as close to someone as you thought you were. Maybe you're dealing with desolation, whether physically or figuratively, you're living in a, a, de a desolate season where you feel distant from God, distant, distant from others, and you're all alone. Uh, the scriptures in the New Testament describe David's condition, and I think it'll help describe ours as well. When the apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power, it belongs to God and not to us. Listen to what he says. We are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. Perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. That's where David was at this season of his life. He'd been run off his throne by his own son. He's running for his life. He doesn't have access to the things that he once had access to. His incredible kingdom and his credible kingship looks like it's in shambles and will never recover. So whether you're living in a season of spiritual growth or regression, this message is designed to bring you to a place no matter where you are to understand. The greatest thing you can do, no matter where you are and what you're going through, is to seek God. Seek the Lord. Listen to the words of David in Psalm 63, there in verse number one. If you're physically able, would you stand with me now out of respect for the reading of our primary text in God's word? Psalm chapter 63, we're gonna look at verse number one together. The whole chapter is valuable. I encourage you to read it, but verse one sets the tone. David writes, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Would you pray with me? Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for your incredible word here. We thank you for a, a window into King David's desolate place and, and drama, sinfulness, and betrayal. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to see how exactly our greatest turn, our greatest step, 
Our most important decision today would be to seek you above all else and before all else. So guide us as we teach and help us to draw closer to Jesus. In his name we pray, amen and amen. Thank you, you can be seated. The main idea of the message I have for you today is this, is that an intimate encounter with God is available to those who seek him. An intimate encounter with God is available to those who seek him. And I want to show you two parts of seeking God in Psalm 63 and verse 1 that I hope will help you today. The first part of seeking God is seeking God passionately. Seeking God and doing so passionately. It's an active and it's an aggressive stance. The psalmist writes, David writes, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh, it faints for you. In this season of isolation and desolation, what does David do? David has every right to point fingers and say, well, Absalom has done this and Amnon did that and, and my nephew's done these things and, the, and the, the leader of the tribe. But no, but no, instead what David does is he cries out to God and he cries out to God for what? He doesn't cry out for deliverance. He doesn't cry out for satisfaction. He doesn't cry out for redemption. David, and I love this, David in a moment of darkness cries out to God for God. That's what he needs. That's what his soul desires. That's what he's thirsty for. He's thirsty most, first and foremost, for the God of the kingdom. He's absolutely confident in God's presence as well as his own security in him. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse six says, whoever would draw near to God must believe first of all that he exists and he rewards those who diligently seek him. David uses this term thirst and he, his soul faints. That word thirst is commonplace to us. You know, water is essential to life because water is, an, is a critical element to the body. See, as much as 60% uh, of our human bodies are made up of water. Therefore, hydration is absolutely necessary for us to function. What is dehydration then? Well, dehydration is basically when we are expending more water than we're taking in. You say, well, how do we expend water? Well, we expend water through three major ways. Number one, we expend water as we breathe. You ever taken a mirror up to your mouth and breathed on it? That fog that you put onto the mirror, that's moisture. That's, that's, that's water, that's leaving. So every single time you breathe in, everybody breathe in, let it go. Every time you breathe out, you're expending water. So hydrate, you're, you are dehydrating as you breathe in and out. In addition, we sweat. We sweat. Whenever we walk around, we go places, we do things. We are uh, expending. I was in New Orleans for four days this week, and it was 98 degrees with about a 99% humidity. Let me tell you what we did a lot of in New Orleans. We dehydrated in New Orleans. I mean, we absolutely did. Maybe that's why they drink so much down. I don't know. Anyway, nevertheless. <laughs> We also expend water by breathing, sweating, but also by eliminating whenever we go to the bathroom. So the average adult human needs to replenish the, the replenish the water that's leaving our bodies. And usually we need to drink roughly a half a gallon of water every day. So your milk jug, about half of that. It's how much water we need to drink just to keep up. If we don't do that, the body begins to dehydrate. Now the first sign that we're dehydrating is thirst. Everybody say thirst. Thirst. Whenever you're thirsty, that's your body saying, hey, 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 I'm dehydrating. Or it's your six-year-old who doesn't want to go to bed, right? They're always thirsty when it's time to go to bed. Always. Hadn't drunk anything all day long, but now it's time for bed. It's time for a drink. So the body's initial response to dehydration is thirst teaching us to take a drink. If we don't take a drink, whenever we're thirsty, we begin to get dry mouth. 
Then all of a sudden we're not going to the bathroom as often as we should. Then what happens is we don't sweat as much as we should sweat because your body's conserving that hydration. If you still don't take a drink, then all of a sudden you begin to have muscle cramps. Then eventually you'll be nauseous and your heart will begin to palpitate. You'll get lightheaded and, and then generally you'll just kind of go weak if you continue to deny your body the water that it needs. Eventually, your body will go into survival mode. And what it will do is it'll increase our heart rate and it'll decrease our blood vessel size so that it can get blood to vital organs. And in so doing, your body will redirect the blood from your skin and send it to your vital organs to keep yourself alive. That's why another element of uh, dehydration is cold, clammy skin. It's because blood is being redirected away from your skin so that it can keep your heart and your lungs and your vital organs functioning. If you don't hydrate, you'll eventually become confused. You'll slip into a coma. Organ failure will set in and eventually you will die. You can survive three weeks without food. You can survive uh, no more than five days without water. Why? Because it's an essential for life and it all begins with thirst. Everybody say thirst. Thirst. It begins with thirst. In David's dark moments, what did he long for? What was he thirsty for? What did he desire more than anything else? He says, my thirst, my soul, it thirsts for you. My flesh, it faints for you. And here's the amazing thing about David. He knew this and you do too. Even though he was on the shores of the Dead Sea hanging out in caves, David was not distant from God. You understand God had not left David. God had not abandoned David. David was as close to God on the shores of the Dead Sea in a cave as he was in Jerusalem in his palace or in the temple on the Temple Mount. He was just as close to God as he ever was. But he felt distant because he was distant from the elements of his worship. The ark was a long way away. The temple was nowhere in sight. All of the normal elements of David's worship were gone, much like it was for us during that season of remote worship that God was there. Theologian Derek Kidner says this, the longing of these verses is not the groping of a stranger feeling his way toward God, but instead it's the eagerness of a friend, almost a love to be in touch with the one that he holds dear. I don't know about you, but as I read this from David in Psalm 63, my mind goes to the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter five and verse six, Jesus says this, blessed are those who hunger and, anybody know? Thirst. Thirst. For what? For righteousness. And what is the promise? For they shall be satisfied. That's what we desire, dear friends. We have longings in our heart and soul that only God can fill. But when he does, it's a satisfaction the likes of which we've never before experienced. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, possession, it breeds desire. Full assurance is no hindrance to diligence, but it is the main spring of it. David was confident, and so he cried out as one confident. His thirst for God was not an indicator of a distance from God. It was an indicator of his nearness to God. In his dire circumstances, he was both full of God's presence, but also hungry for more. Hungry for more. For us, it's appropriate to enjoy drawing near to God during a time of worship like this one as they're singing those incredible songs. Yes, we believe for it. 
Songs that lift up Jesus and praise and bless our souls and hearts. And we have a worship team like this one over at your other locations around Eastern Kentucky. Worship teams leading us all in praise. It's wonderful and such a joy to worship and to serve him and to, to be in moments like this. So, but also there's a, a time and a place where we feel distant. We feel empty. We feel as though, we feel as though there's, there's no connection, that our prayers don't go past the ceiling fan whether we're in a season of fullness or a season of difficulty, God is not distant from us. He is intimate and he's with us. And his invitation is this, seek me, seek me, seek my heart, seek my face, come to know me. The promise is an intimate encounter with God as a is available to those who seek him. So first of all, we seek God passionately. Secondly, I wanna show you that we're to seek God and do so primarily, primarily, of first importance, of most importance. Not only are we to seek him with passion, we're also to seek him first. Listen to the second part of verse one, as David writes, he's seeking the Lord as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Now see, there's a lot of things that would claim to be able to quench our thirst for God. Sometimes we feel like that our thirst for God could be quenched if we just knew more, if we just took our time to dive into God's word. And if we knew more, if we knew more Bible, if we had more theology, if we had a greater grip on, on what the Bible teaches, then all of a sudden that would satisfy our thirst for God. And by all means, I, I desire that, that all believers dive into the word of God and know the word of God. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a valuable thing to do, to, 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 to hear from him through his word. But, but, but we are called to seek the Lord, not, not to seek the Bible. We seek the Lord through the scriptures. In fact, that's the reason we have a Bible is not so we can know more Bible. It's so that we can know God. Many times we think knowledge is, it will quench our desire for God. Some think that pleasure will, if I could just reach a, 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 an ultimate sense of pleasure that I can fulfill every one of my desires, then that'll quench my thirst for God. Some think that I can make it with money. Research coming out in recent days shows that Gen Z is, is really continually elevating financial gain as, as the number one ideal over all other things. And, and we know that. We all, every generation knows that that isn't vain and empty pursuit. Money cannot fill the void that only God can fill. Success, independence, pride, all of those things, they promise that they will be able to quench our thirst for God, but none of them will. David here is crystal clear. All attempts to satisfy the longing of our souls apart from God is like trying to, to find water in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I went through a season of personal dryness as a college student. Uh, a little bit of my story, I was saved as a young boy. Uh, God called me to the ministry as a teenager. I was 15 years old when I distinctly heard the voice of God tell me that I was gonna spend my life serving him in ministry, preaching the gospel. And so I pursued it at that point. So by the time I was 15, 16 years old, I was preaching in churches and Bible studies. And, and when I went off to, to Bible college, I went to Lynchburg, Virginia, to, to Liberty University as a, as a freshman. And I, I was still traveling and preaching most weekends and things was, were going pretty well. And I got to my junior year and I just hit kind of a wall. And I can't explain it. Like I can't tell you, it wasn't anything physical. I was physically healthy. It wasn't anything that I could say of sin that I, was, I had fallen prey to. I wasn't in rebellion against the Lord. There's no secret life I was leading, those kind of things. I had good friends. I, I, I had great grades. Everything seemed to be going well, but man, I was empty and I was completely dry. There came a Sunday morning 
when I wasn't preaching anywhere else. And so I got out of my dorm room and I walked over to the Schilling Center, the, 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 the gymnasium where they had campus church. And when I got there, I discovered that one of my professors uh, was going to be preaching that morning. And I didn't consider him to be one of the most exciting professors. And so I'll be honest, I wasn't thrilled when I walked in and saw that it was, it was this particular brother who was going to be preaching. But I stuck around and he opened the Bible to Jeremiah chapter, chapter number two. And he read these words and then expounded on for the next 45 minutes. And the Holy Spirit of God so wrecked me in that worship gathering because it showed me, it showed me where the dryness was coming from. Listen to the words of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter two, starting in verse 10. It's the prophet speaking on behalf of God to the people of God. And here's what he says. For cross to the coast of Cyprus and sea, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked and utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Let me tell you the three things that got my attention from this passage. We're going on, what was I, 20 then, I'm 41. So 21 years ago, the Lord Almighty arrested my heart and soul with this concept. Number one is he points out that pagan people were more committed to their false gods than Israel was to the true God. That should stun us first and foremost. Pagan worshipers were more dedicated. They weren't pursuing false gods even though their God was a false God. Second thing, it was evil for the people of God to dig their cisterns in an attempt to provide what only God could provide for them. Here's what was happening. God was providing them as the fountain of living water everything they needed for sustenance, but they didn't want to depend on God. They wanted to dig their own cisterns. So they started digging these cisterns, digging up wells. Cistern was basically an above ground well. It was designed to catch water, to capture water, so you'd always have it. But the problem with cisterns were twofold. Number one, as the scripture says, they would break and they would leak and they couldn't hold water. The second thing is if they did hold water because of where they were in the culture and the context where they were, mosquitoes would come and they would develop that well into a breeding ground where they would make the, the water putrid. And so even if you held water, it would never work. But the people of God continue to try to re refuse God as their provision and instead just kept digging and digging and digging and digging and digging. They wanted to provide for themselves what only God could provide for them. And it occurred to me at 20 years old, that's exactly what I was doing. That I was trying to build for myself a life build for myself a ministry, build for myself what only God could provide. Yeah, I could quote the verses, I could preach the sermons, I could sing the songs, I could say all the right things, but ultimately I was seeking my own ministry over intimacy with God and that was purely evil. That's the word Jeremiah uses, it's evil, it's evil. To try to create for ourselves what only God can provide is evil. And I had turned away from God's loving provision for my life and I decided I was gonna build it on my own. So that morning, God clearly commanded that I stop digging and that I start trusting. Stop digging and start trusting. That's a word for us fathers, men. I've got three of my own. Stop digging, start trusting.
start trusting. Stop trying to do for yourself and for your family what only God can provide. Stop digging and start trusting. Spurgeon said it this way, only after God let us pant. Let all of our desires be gathered into one. I want God more than I want anything else. Jesus promised this, my life verse in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Jesus says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You know the rest of it? Say it with me if you do. And all these things will be added to you. You know what these things are? Our family, their needs, their fulfillment, our careers, those demands, those responsibilities, our physical health, our emotional, spiritual health. If we are seeking God first, then all those things will be added unto us. But here's what we do. We dig cisterns instead. We put God on the shelf and we begin to pursue other things instead of him and it will never work. An intimate encounter with God is available to those who seek him. We have a few flowers around our house. Now, I told you, I live in New York City, and I'm blessed to have a home. I actually have a home. I'm one of the few people in New York City, I have a house, and it's just mine. Now, I can reach out my window and touch my neighbor's house, okay? So, before we get too excited, you know, I, I walk around places like this, and I see enormous lawns and beautiful manicured yards. My lawn is about the size, well, of a, of a postage stamp, okay? It takes me more time to get the lawnmower out of the garage than it does to cut my grass. That's where we live. But at our house, we have plants. We have flower boxes on the front um, that have little flowers in them. We have some flowers in the back as well in our little patio. And there's really two ways that I have that I can, uh, that I can water my flowers. I either can take a, a watering pitcher, which is, you know, an easy way to do it. You take the pitcher inside, you put it under the faucet, fill it up, and then go. And you got to go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth until you've watered all the plants. A better and a more sufficient way to water the plants is to go outside and pull the water hose, the gardening hose out. Because once you turn on the faucet, you've got your gardening hose, you have everything you need. You don't have to go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth to the sink because it's all available to you. Now, when it comes to this illustration of how do we water our lives, how do we, how do we quench our thirst for God, we like the jugs. You know why? Because we can hold them. We can see them. We can see the water in them. We feel we have some control over the water jug. You know, we see the water. We can feel the water. The weight of it is in our hands. But instead... We should look at it more like a garden hose. We should look at the, the satisfaction, the hydration of our lives from God more as a water hose. Why? Because the garden hose, it promises a longer lasting supply. But you only enjoy it if you're willing to trust the source and the sustainability of the water. Dear friends, God is more than enough for us. He is sufficient for every single need you have. He has proven himself faithful time and time and time and time again. Whereas we tend to walk around our lives with water jugs and water a little bit here and give a little bit there and give a little bit there. And out of this jug, we're so stingy with it because there's a limited supply. God says you don't need to, to quench your thirst with a, with a self-contained jug. You have a water hose that is tapped into an endless supply that is the source of living water. It is God himself. Amen. And you can expend every last drop out of that hose to the people in your life, to the people in your community, to your neighbors and friends and loved ones. You can give every bit of sustenance and nourishment you have to them. Why? Because you know your God is good and he is always going to provide for you. Yes. He's always gonna provide. 
This is what we teach as it relates to generosity. If you live generously with an open hand, then God will always supply your needs according to his riches and glory, Philippians chapter four tells us. But if we live stingy with a closed fist, guess what? We don't get the benefit of generosity. We also don't get the benefit of receiving even more that God wants to give us. What's true with money is also true with patience. It's also true with kindness. It's also true with love. It's also true with investment into people on a spiritual level. God will always supply. That's who he is. That's who he is. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 4. Everyone who drinks of this water, he was pointing to a well, Jacob's well. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. <clears throat> but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Why? Because the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. So my question for you today, Creek Church in London, Kentucky is, are you thirsty for God? Are you hungry for him? If you were to write down a list of things that you're pursuing right now, where is God's presence and power rank? Sometimes we take it for granted. We, we, we know we have his presence, right? I'll never leave you or forsake you. We know that to be true. We take it for granted, but just because, because he's present does not remove us from the call to seek him. If you're not seeking God, be honest about it and ask God to give you a deep yearning for him because you're just not satisfied with anything else. God is the only one who can empower us to seek him passionately and primarily. You know God's greatest tool to get us to seek him? You know this, right? I know you know this. God's greatest tool to get us to seek him the way we should? It's difficulty, isn't it? It's pain, right? God's greatest tool to get his children to turn their face upon him is pain. Do I think David would have sought the Lord as sincerely in the palace as he did down in the cave? I don't know, I can't speak for it. But I can say for John, the moments that I have sought God most diligently were usually in the context of my painful moments. Whenever there's a diagnosis I don't understand, whenever there's a, there's a the relationship fraction, whenever there's a financial need, usually what gets me seeking God are very difficult days, very difficult moments, very challenging seasons. Is that just me or can you relate to that? If you're, if you're with me, say amen. amen. It's those difficult seasons that call us to seek the Lord. And it, it stands to reason, doesn't it? And I mentioned I have three children. Um, you know, one of the things I've noticed about my kids is, uh, is whenever they get scared at night, they always do one thing. What do your kids do when they get scared at night? They come into your room, don't they? It don't matter what it is. My kids get scared because there's a thunderstorm outside, you know, and the lightning's flashing and the, and, the, and the thunder is cracking. And so they're getting nervous and scared. And here's the cool thing. They could come into mom and dad's room and they could climb into our bed. And guess what's still happening outside? Thunder is still clapping and lightning is still flashing. But now because they're in bed with mom and dad, they're fast asleep, aren't they? We didn't stop the lightning and thunder, did we? But we took away their fear. You know what took away their fear? Nearness, closeness to mom and dad. The boogeyman in the closet. I didn't go in the room and kill the boogeyman. That boogeyman, as far as that kid knows, is still in their closet waiting to bite their toes off at first opportunity. But yet they climbed into bed with mom and dad and guess what they're not worried about anymore? The boogeyman, they're not worried about it. They were scared of the dark in their room. Guess what? Mom and dad's room is even darker. There's no nightlight in mom and dad's room. 
But guess what they're not scared of anymore when they climb into bed with mom and dad? Even though the darkness is even more dark, guess what assuages their fear and guess what calms their nerves? Nearness to mom and dad. Do you hear me, church? In our moments of difficulty and despair, God might not change our circumstances. He might not fix all the problems we'd list as the things causing us stress, anxiety, and fear. But here's what I can promise you. I can promise you that nearness and closeness to your heavenly father is what will assuage and cast out all fear. His perfect love is enough. So whether you're in a mountaintop, wonderful moment, or whether you're in the valley of desolation and difficulty, one thing and one thing alone makes the most amount of sense in the world. And it's this, seek God passionately and seek God primarily. He's worth it and he's worthy of worship. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I thank you for this opportunity to, to offer just a simple, a simple word of encouragement to this dear blessed church. God, I thank you that you tell us that that we'll seek you and we'll find you when we seek after you with all of our heart. I thank you for those promises. And I thank you for those promises because in this room, we have two groups of people. There are those who know you, have been saved. They've been forgiven of their sins. They know that you're near. They know your promises are true. You've never left them. You've never forsaken them. And no matter what they're going through, Father, you're right there with them by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we say thank you. But God, within that group, within those, your saints, myself included, Lord, we get away. We get distracted from seeking you. And instead we start to seek the things of this world. Money, power, acclaim, pride, comfort. All those things, Lord, are distractions. So God, would you call us back to a place of seeking you passionately and seeking you primarily. And as the old hymn says, the things of earth, they go strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. So God, call your children to yourself and bring us to a place of earnestly seeking you. But Lord, I believe there are others in this room that have not yet experienced the fullness of joy that's in a relationship with Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And Father, you're drawing them to yourself as well. So it's my prayer and hope that there would be many here in this room or at the other locations and campuses of the Creek Church that are hearing my voice now. They would for the very first time turn from themselves, turn from their sin and place their faith and trust in Jesus to save them, to forgive them and to make them new. And I pray they'd find you to be more than enough for every single season of life. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the privilege that it is to be called your children. And we thank you that you allow us to climb up into your arms to call you Abba Father as our fears and anxieties drift away. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. As we dismiss in a moment, if you'd like to speak with somebody about how to have a relationship with Jesus to be saved, the next steps area of the church is available to you. Please take your next steps and seek the Lord with others in this church family. God bless you.